Kia and welcome to Goodfellow Podcasts. This episode is kindly supported by an educational grant from Eli Lilly. I'm Dr. Louise Kugler, a specialist GP, and today I welcome Rinky Murphy to discuss the new New Zealand Diabetes Guidelines for Adults, and specifically a discussion around dulaglutide, as this has become available in New Zealand and funded on special authority. And it adds a new tool to our prescribing toolbox. In this episode, we aim to provide an update on type 2 diabetes management now that dulaglutide or Trulicity is available in New Zealand. Rinky is a diabetes physician at both Auckland District Health Board and Counties Manukau Health. She is Associate Professor in Medicine at the University of Auckland and the Principal Investigator at the Morris Wilkins Centre for Biodiscovery. So welcome Rinky to the podcast. Thank you for being with us. Kia ora Louise, thank you. So today we are discussing type 2 diabetes management with a focus on the GLP-1 receptor agonists. Dulaglutide or Trulicity now has MedSafe approval in New Zealand. So we will discuss the indications for use and how to use this medication. But first of all, Rinki, lifestyle interventions are crucial at all stages of management of type 2 diabetes and reduce the need for pharmacological treatment. So tell us why lifestyle interventions are so important in the early years after diagnosis and why weight reduction is so crucial. Yes, one of the key things that we know is that fat mass in the wrong places, such as inside and around key organs, such as the pancreas and the liver, are key in driving the development of type 2 diabetes. Um, And some of the recent studies have demonstrated that you can actually achieve remission of type 2 diabetes with significant weight loss. And we've known this through our studies in bariatric surgery, but also through dietary means. And recently, we've got um, the idea developing that whilst we've had these general population level BMI thresholds for classifying who's overweight and who might have obesity, those people who develop type 2 diabetes have in in fact exceeded their own individualized healthy BMI. And so by losing even a modest amount of weight, this can have a great deal of impact on their type 2 diabetes um, management uh, and progression, and in some cases, even achieving diabetes remission. And the direct trial was one of the first randomized control trials of having a low energy diet and demonstrating how uh, powerful that could be in terms of achieving quite significant weight loss and keeping that off over two years. And uh, the amount of weight loss achieved was directly proportional to the success of diabetes remission in that study. You said a moderate amount of weight. Can you clarify what were were the numbers there needed to see that? So in the direct study, it was quite an intensive program of low energy diet that was delivered across multiple practices in um, the UK and Scotland. So in the intervention group, there was um, there were people who achieved over 15 kilos of weight loss um, just through the low energy diet. And in those people, a quarter of the uh, people who got the low energy diet achieved that amount of weight loss, which is quite phenomenal really without any type of bariatric surgery. And in the group who had over 15 kilos of weight loss, 90% of people achieved remission of type 2 diabetes. 
but entry into the study, you needed to have um, type 2 diabetes for uh, six years or under. And even in lower degrees of weight loss, so the people who had 10 or 15 kilos of weight loss, there was about 60% of people remitted their diabetes and even modest amounts um, under 10 kilos, there were a third of people who were able to um, remit diabetes. And that was compared to the control group who the prevalence of remission was really rare and only about 4%. So with the New Zealand Diabetes Guidelines being updated and the availability of these new medications on the schedule, Rinky, how do we best approach the pharmacological management should we go down that track? Lifestyle followed by metformin is the advice for all people with type 2 diabetes. And the newer guidelines recommend adding a second glucose-lowering agent uh, very early um, or earlier than we're used to. So if the starting HbA1c is above 64, consider a second glucose-lowering agent. And then that choice of second glucose-lowering agent is no longer metformin followed by sulfonylurea. Rather, the second agent is now selected based on cardiorenal risk factors and then considering the side effects and contraindications. So the key thing to note is that after metformin, if there's any renal disease or cardiovascular disease, then the preference is to add an SGLT2 inhibitor or a GLP-1 receptor agonist, otherwise go for a DPP-4 inhibitor. And then within the renal disease or cardiovascular grouping, um, there is some merit in selecting the SGLT2 inhibitor over the GLP-1 receptor agonist in those people who have heart failure or renal disease as these are the two key characteristics of populations that benefit most from the SGLT2 inhibitors. And choosing the GLP-1 receptor agonist is better for those people who have predominantly cardiovascular disease or risk factors for this. So when we're coming to the third line agents after metformin plus GLP-1 receptor agonist or an SGLT2 inhibitor or a DPP-4 inhibitor, this is where we can use uh, two of these agents or the newer agents in combination before we'd reach for the sulfonylurea or insulin or pioglitazone. So examples of triple therapy would be metformin plus a DPP-4 inhibitor plus an SGLT2 inhibitor or metformin plus an SGLT2 inhibitor plus a GLP-1 receptor agonist. But the former, the combination of SGLT2 inhibitor and GLP-1 receptor agonist is not fully funded and would need self-funding of one of the agents, the cheaper of the two being the SGLT2 inhibitor. Great. Thank you for clarifying that. So talking about the GLP-1 receptor agonists for a moment, you said they're preferred in some conditions and that they reduce cardiovascular mortality. So how do these medications work? Exactly. So the GLP-1 receptor agonists work on GLP-1 receptors that are found in many tissues, but particularly in the pancreatic beta cells, uh, where they increase glucose-stimulated insulin secretion. So unlike um, insulin, which directly uh, promotes glucose uptake and lowers blood glucose, by stimulating the pancreatic beta cells to increase, a glucose-dependent form of insulin secretion has key advantages for preventing hypoglycemia and also for reducing weight gain. Its weight gain um, or weight reducing properties actually come from uh, the GLP-1 receptor agonist um, effect in the stomach to reduce gastric emptying, and also in the brain to reduce appetite, as well as um, interacting with receptors in the heart and the kidneys, which provide additional benefits in cardiovascular disease and renal outcomes. 
one of the things that the endogenous GLP-1 uh, does is uh, promote the incretin effect. So GLP-1 is released in response to food. And what it does is it slows the uh, stomach emptying and promotes that feeling of fullness, as well as amplifies the insulin response to uh, glucose rises uh, in anticipation of the food arriving. So the GLP-1 receptor agonists are a mimic of the molecules that are made endogenously and uh, recapitulate in a more powerful way what uh, endogenous GLP-1 does. So you've already mentioned a number of the advantages of these medications for the diabetic patient, but what are some of the other ones? So there's a, a key lowering of HbA1c. And out of many of the non-insulin therapies, the GLP-1 receptor agonists as a class have the most have the greatest HbA1c lowering capacity. So depending on the starting HbA1c, you can expect a lowering of 10 to 15 to even 20 millimoles per mole, even among people with uh, renal impairment. So in contrast to the SGLT2 inhibitors, which also have um, quite marked glucose lowering efficacy, their glucose lowering efficacy of the SGLT2 inhibitors declines with reducing EGFR. There's also the additional benefit of lack of hypoglycemia when the GLP-1 receptor agonists are used with other medications that don't cause hypoglycemia directly, such as metformin and SGLT2 inhibitors. Uh, so in this way, they have the weight loss effect, the lower appetite, the lack of hypos, plus the HbA1c lowering. And dulaglutide that has been funded under special authority criteria have a once-weekly dosing and no dose adjustment required down to an EGFR of 15 mils per minute. So that offers quite a, um, a significant impact on ease of administration. So what cohort of um, patients would benefit specifically from this medication? And how would we identify these patients? So I think we should um, systematically screen our patients for significant CVD risk factors if they don't have pre-existing cardiovascular disease already. Those are the people who will most benefit from uh, GLP-1 receptor agonists. And also selecting those people who are um, on SGLT2 inhibitors and in those in whom additional glucose-lowering therapy is desired and they're able to self-fund one, this is a clear advantage in that group who are also going to likely have additive benefits of being on both agents. So people who have uh, heart failure are generally better on SGLT2 inhibitors and, um, and clearly those people who have significant renal impairment or if the SGLT2 inhibitor is contraindicated or not tolerated, then having a GLP-1 receptor agonist on board is a, a key priority. And also in those in whom weight loss is a priority, even in the absence of cardiovascular um, risk thresholds being elevated, then the GLP-1 receptor agonist is the best in class in the different classes of type 2 diabetes medications to achieve that. So the benefits of these medications over the HbA1c, you've mentioned that, but what else can we expect our patients to benefit from when we are on, on these medications? The studies tell us that there is a reduction in myocardial infarction, non-fatal stroke and cardiovascular death, particularly with dulaglutide, which was tested in people with high risk factors. And so um, these were people without existing cardiovascular disease. And uh, the numbers needed to treat in people with established cardiovascular disease with dulaglutide is 18 for five years, while those with two or more risk factors, which is um, the group 
closely re resembling our threshold for funding is the is 60 in NT of 60. So beyond weight loss and uh, the cardiovascular benefit, as well as the HbA1c lowering benefit and its attendant um, impacts on microvascular complication makes this a really beneficial treatment. Are there any particular patients we should be cautious about prescribing dulaglutide? So in those people who have previous acute pancreatitis or severe gut motility problems like gastroparesis, or if they have significant um, renal impairment with EGFR under 15, we should be cautious about prescribing this or not. It's, it's not recommended in, this, in those groups um, who have uh, particularly people, uh, women who are pregnant or breastfeeding, it hasn't been tested. And there is a caution in uh, people who have a history of medullary thyroid cancer or have um, uh, multiple endocrine neoplasia to running in, in their family with phagochromocytomas and parathyroid cancer. You mentioned we don't have to be so cautious about hypoglycemia. Tell us about that. So the way in which GLP-1 receptor agonists work is that they amplify the incretin response of uh, GLP-1, so the glucose-stimulated insulin secretion. Uh, in the in the context where other glucose-lowering therapies can cause hypoglycemia, then this impact can still result in hypo. So we do need to be aware of reducing the background insulin therapy or the background sulfonylurea therapy if somebody's already near target. Clearly, if their HbO1c is very high, then having that additional glucose-lowering impact of the GLP-1 receptor agonist would be beneficial. And in some cases, we would still need to add on therapies or um, escalate the insulin requirements to get to target as these drugs like the other classes have a limited effect on HbA1c. So Rinki, how do these, how does dulaglutide fit in our prescribing pathway for diabetes? And what if someone was already on a sulfonylurea and metformin already, or they're on insulin? How would we add it in? Yes, yeah, so if somebody has uh, cardiovascular risk factors and type 2 diabetes, we need to try and shoehorn a, a cardiovascular reducing medication into their treatment regimen. And this can be through an SGLT2 inhibitor, a GLP-1 receptor agonist, or both. And so um, for funding reasons, um, if somebody has an HbA1c that happens to be below 53 despite regular use of one or more glucose-lowering medications for at least three months, then the background doses or the number of the glucose-lowering medications may need to be reduced to fulfill the special authority criteria and um, substitute mm -hmm. that with a cardioprotective glucose-lowering agent, either a GLP-1 or an SGLT2 inhibitor. In many cases, if somebody is on a sulfonylurea and metformin and their HbA1c is under 53, I would recommend withdrawing the sulfonylurea and uh, seeing that the HbA1c rises so that they can um, fulfill the special authority criteria for treatment with one of these cardioprotective medications. If their HbA1c is above target, then adding on the GLP-1 receptor agonist on top of a sulfonylurea and metformin would be um, worthwhile. Uh, and depending on how high the HbA1c is, the sulfonylurea dose can be um, reduced or removed entirely. Um, so, for example, if they were um, had an HbA1c of around 55, then just replacing the sulfonylurea with a GLP-1 receptor agonist would be worthwhile. If somebody was on insulin already, depending on whether it was premixed or basal insulin, 
the same um, considerations need to be taken. So if it's close to target, then the dose of the insulin could be reduced. And if it's very high, then the additional effect of the GLP-1 receptor agonist can be used to try and get that person towards target. In some cases, the insulin may um, be able to be withdrawn depending on the dose and the HbA1c. So that provides a great um, advantage for patients moving from daily basal insulin to once weekly dulaglutide, particularly because they have not only the additional cardiovascular benefits, but they have reduced weight gain and um, and the reduced um, burden of uh, daily injections and monitoring that goes along with insulin. Wonderful. So the GLP receptor agonists that are currently available in New Zealand, what can we prescribe? So from the 1st of September 2021, we'll be able to prescribe dulaglutide or trilicity under the identical special authority funding criteria to Jardians. We, one of the criteria for um, dulaglutide is that the person is not already on funded Jardians, so they will have to choose between the two for which one is funded. Um, in terms of other GLP-1 receptor agonists, these are unfunded. The recently available liraglutide is available at, um, uh, as Saxenda at the three milligram once daily subcutaneous dose for obesity indication and uh, or type 2 diabetes with a lower uh, 1.8 subcutaneous daily dose for type 2 diabetes benefit. We also have exenotide as the twice daily dose um, for type 2 diabetes indication, all as subcutaneous formulations. So Rinki, you've mentioned previously about Trulicity. I wonder if we can talk about this for a moment now. It will be new to many of our listeners. So when would you choose dulaglutide or Trulicity over one of the other GLP-1 receptor agonist drugs? So uh, Trulicity um, or dulaglutide has um, specific uh, evidence around cardiovascular benefit, even in uh, people with CVD risk factors. Although as a class, it appears that uh, GLP-1 receptor agonists in general um, provide um, cardiovascular and to some extent renal benefits. Um, the renal data is still um, not as clear as it is for the SGLT2 inhibitors. So in terms of um, Selecting Trulicity, um, this would be ideal for people with cardiovascular risk factors in those people who have excess weight and have type 2 diabetes as they will qualify for funding under special authority criteria. It may need, delay the need for insulin or reduce the dose required. And clearly in those people who don't tolerate an SGLT2 inhibitor or it's contraindicated because their EGFR is say between 15 and 30, they can be considered for uh, Trulicity. Um, in those people who have side effects from an SGLT2 inhibitor, such as recurrent thrush or UTIs, or prefer uh, a ketogenic diet or uh, VLCD in preparation for surgery, those people would all benefit from um, Trulicity over Jardians. So you mentioned the special authority criteria. So who is it funded for and what is the criteria? So it's funded uh, under special authority criteria, which any G uh, healthcare provider can apply for. That's um, general practitioners, nurse practitioners, pharmacists, prescribers, as well as specialists. And the key indication is having type 2 diabetes and not achieving target HbA1c of 53, despite the regular use of one agent for at least three months. 
and the patient not also taking a funded agent such as GLP-1 receptor agonist or SGLT-2 inhibitor in combination, both under funding, they have to, after those three criteria, also have to fulfill at least one of five criteria, which includes being of Māori or any Pacific ethnicity or having pre-existing cardiovascular disease or risk equivalent or having an absolute five-year CVD risk of 15% or greater or having a high lifetime cardiovascular risk due to being diagnosed with type 2 diabetes during childhood or as a young adult, or having diabetic kidney disease, which is um, defined as including people with an ACR albumin to creatinine ratio above three on at least two out of three samples, and or having an EGFR less than 60 in the presence of diabetes. And Rinky, who wouldn't we prescribe this medication to? Yeah, so people um, with an EGFR under 15 or with significant gastrointestinal disease with severe gastroparesis, someone who's pregnant or breastfeeding, and people who have a personal family history of medullary thyroid cancer or um, MEN2. We need to be cautious in people with a past history of acute pancreatitis, although there's no um, significant increase in this risk. Okay, so talking about the practical things now, so how do we use it, the titration and the monitoring? Yes, so I would set the expectation and discuss with my patient how these medications uh, or the GLP-1 receptor agonists um, work on the gastrointestinal tract, um, how they slow gastric emptying and that as a result, the gastrointestinal side effects are common, um, that these occur early on but are short-lived and disappear with time. The key thing I would stress is that these drugs impact on satiety and that some of the nausea may be slower gastric emptying and that sensation of fullness on the brain that can be interpreted as nausea. So eating less, uh, eating more slowly and avoiding fatty foods is very important for um, increasing tolerability and realizing the full potential of this medication on weight loss. So learning to, to, to really follow um, cues, uh, stop eating when full, uh, start with a smaller serving size than usual, and keeping a diary of which foods trigger the gastrointestinal side effects can also help um, troubleshoot and avoid those um, early side effects. And not having side effects is not an indication that the drug isn't working. So um, whilst it can occur in um, many people, up to 30% of people have some um, gastrointestinal side effects at the start, it is important to know that this is um, how this is resulting. In terms of practicalities, um, Trulicity is available as an auto-injector and it's only available at the 1.5 milligram dose pen, which isn't dialable. And so the initial dosing interval could be extended to uh, two weeks or longer to reduce the potential for, side for gastrointestinal side effects if someone's already experiencing those after their very first dose. And then over time, you can reduce the dosing interval gradually towards that seven-day dosing interval. And I would explain to people, particularly those who have not been treated with insulin in the past, that the needle in the auto-injector is hidden. There's no need to uh, reconstitute any of the ingredients within the auto-injector. It's very simple to use. It has a very fine needle that you can't see, 29 gauge, as thin as a human hair, and that it hurts less than a capillary finger stick. It's very straightforward to use. You um, uncap the pen, demonstrate how you unlock it, you press it, you inject, um, you hold it above your abdomen firmly, 
you press and hold and um, and it's done in 10 seconds. So it's um, very straightforward to use. Um, and finally, the dulaglutide does have a very wide therapeutic window. So the instruction of, um, and you may have seen on the MedSafe data sheet, not to take two doses of Trilisty within 72 hours of each other, is really just to reduce the potential for GI side effects. Although the award study has demonstrated that this drug is safe and in fact has increased glucose and weight lowering efficacy at the, th- at the higher doses. So we have the 1.5 milligram Trulicity auto-injector. When it was tested at a higher dose of three milligrams or 4.5 milligrams weekly, there were successive improvements in HbA1c and in weight, um, weight loss over a long period of time. So, you know, stacking up doses um, is, is not going to um, cause any harm. And, and so clearly the shortened dosing interval of 72 hours would still fall within the higher doses that have been demonstrated to have safety and increased efficacy in this way. But clearly having some memory aids over how to remember to take this medication once weekly when people are clearly used to taking daily medications is, is needed. Great. All right. Thank you for that, Rinky. So I do have a practical question. Do we need to rotate the injection sites? And how commonly do people have injection site inflammation or irritation? Yeah, so there can be some transient injection site redness or nodules, but this is reported to be less than 1% of patients. So for this reason, more than the overuse that we can see with um, insulin in the same spot, some degree of rotation would be um, worthwhile and not just gravitating to the same site. Yeah, so that's not that same reason for rotating as we do for insulin. Um, it's more just um, around those initial redness and nodules just might be wise to at least um, switch sides when injecting. Excellent. Thank you. So what sort of improvements can we expect to see and how do we monitor our patients while they're on dulaglutide? Yeah, so we do expect to see a reduction in HbA1c. And um, so I would wait until the three-month time point to evaluate an HbA1c. But in the meantime, if they're on background glucose-lowering medications that may need modification, then having an increased um, awareness of monitoring for hypos and reporting those so that uh, sulfonylureas or insulin or both may need to be uh, adjusted sooner rather than later to get the most benefit out of the additional impact of the GLP-1 receptor agonist. The reduction in weight is generally realized over time and is in the order of about five kilograms in weight. So we would probably just monitor at the three-month mark um, to see what the impact has been at that point and the tolerability if people are having um, any concerns around severe vomiting and and diarrhea that clearly they need to come back sooner than that for um, adjusting the medication dosing interval and or evaluating for alternative causes of these. So you've mentioned the dosing interval already. So at what point would we step up or step down as far as dosing interval goes? So I would ask patients to monitor their um, GI side effects and really make the call around whether they are keen to extend the dosing interval initially to fortnightly for the second dose or even longer if their symptoms are not subsiding after that initial dose. Clearly having the second dose on board can aggravate the um, initial 
gastrointestinal side effects. Over time, actually uh, reducing the dosing interval towards seven days is, is required, but further reductions are not actually what we have in our prescribing guidelines currently. So um, we don't have the higher dose available in New Zealand. So any instructions to reduce the dosing interval below seven days would be off-label prescribing. So you've mentioned the gastrointestinal side effects. How common are these and how frequently would someone discontinue their medication because of these or because of other side effects? Yes, so the gastrointestinal side effects are very common. So they're seen in about a quarter of the patients started would have at least nausea if not any other, um, uh, at the start of these uh, these medications. So it's um, really important, as we discussed earlier, to um, uh, explain to patients that these are expected and what to do about um, about eating behaviour, size of meals and avoiding fatty foods. So with that instruction, it really leads to stopping treatment. And if people are aware of those and the fact that it's... um, usually only in the first few days or weeks, people generally, the discontinuation rate is less than 1% of patients. Okay, great. Thank you, Rinki. And you mentioned weight loss um, had been seen in the trials and about a 5 kg weight loss. Does this confirm a longevity benefit for our patients? So it's interesting how the lower cardiovascular disease mortality and all-cause mortality is actually seen by the GLP-1 receptor agonists, as well as the SGLT2 inhibitors, as to whether any of this is explained by the magnitude of weight loss or a direct cardioprotective effect. And it seems to be more of a direct cardioprotective effect, such that we clearly don't have any evidence of longevity beyond the cardiovascular mortality that's been reported in in the trials. Wonderful. Thank you, Rinki. Trilicity sounds like a great addition to our toolbox along with lifestyle changes and metformin. To conclude our podcast today, what would your take-home messages be for our listeners, please, Rinki? Yes, I would um, recommend to systematically assess all people with type 2 diabetes for the indications for SGLT2 inhibitors or GLP-1 receptor agonists. And for people who have persisting microalbuminuria or chronic kidney disease, consider prescribing SGLT2 inhibitor for long-term renal benefit along with ACE inhibitors and uh, ARBs. Secondly, assess all people systematically for cardiovascular risk or past ischemic heart disease and consider prescribing the GLP-1 receptor agonists in these people along with the usual things we do with statins, blood pressure lowering and smoking cessation. If they're not suitable or have trialed SGLT2 inhibitors in the past and have not tolerated these, then consider prescribing the GLP-1 receptor agonists or vice versa. And we would recommend stopping the vildagliptin, the galvis component, when using the GLP-1 receptor agonist. Both vildagliptin and GLP-1 receptor agonists work on that same incriven pathway. And finally, uh, we are able to use both Jardiance and Trulicity, but only one can be reimbursed through the special authority funding. Wonderful. Thanks for joining me today, Rinki. It's been a pleasure having you on the podcast. If you're a New Zealand GP, you can claim CPD points for listening to this podcast, so please log them. And at goodfellowunit.org, you will find a list of resources that we've used in making this podcast. Thanks for listening.